You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome in to Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that Jay and I find interesting, and we're betting that you may just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get to where you're going. On this edition of Commute, it looks like you're writing a letter. Do you need help with that? If these words bring back a memory of an annoying character named Clippy that was meant to be your digital personal assistant, then you probably used Microsoft Word in the early 2000s. Although Clippy was hated by most, could the pestering paperclip be primed for a comeback? The curious case of Shazam, the beloved 90s movie that doesn't exist. And we explore the most absurd way we consumed music, maybe ever, the hit clip, which played a mere 30 seconds of your favorite song and nothing more. But how did this seemingly ridiculous product have such staying power with young people in the 90s? All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, you and I went to school around the same time, and uh, we were commonly on computers in the computer lab having to use Microsoft products, specifically Microsoft Word. And so I'm sure you're very familiar with the character that we're going to talk about, a personal assistant that Microsoft tried to introduce into Microsoft Word to help you with your projects, a paperclip named Clippy. Do you remember Clippy? What's your relationship like with him? I sure do. So in the early 2000s, I was constantly on instant messengers so I could talk to girls. And every weekend, it felt like when I was that age, we would go to my grandparents' house, and they loved desktop characters. And so they had a bird that you clicked, and their email would come up. They had Clippy down there. You clicked Clippy, and Microsoft Word came up. It was almost like the characters took up so much room on the desktop, like on the home screen, that they dominated the computer. For some reason, when you started that story, you know, you kind of kicked in like, yeah, I was always talking to girls online. I thought you were going to say that you used Clippy for that somehow. Like Clippy would pop up and be like, it looks like you're flirting with a girl. Would you need some help constructing your letter? Or something Start like over. That? Start over. Abort. Do not say that. Abort. Do not send it. So if you use Microsoft Word in the late 90s, the mid 2000s, you're probably familiar with a jovial, bouncing, sentient paperclip named Clippy, a virtual assistant that was meant to help users navigate Microsoft Word and improve their writing skills. If you started typing a letter, for example, like you began typing Dear Dave, the Clippy would appear on the screen and say, looks like you're writing a letter and then offer unsolicited help on letter etiquette. And Microsoft, which at the time was coming off revolutionizing the personal computer, wanted to continue to change the game by introducing Bob, an operating system that attempted to make a personal computer feel more like a home. And the Bob operating system was ultimately criticized for being too purposefully cute, and it never really took off. In fact, Bob is responsible for the famous font Comic Sans, as we know is kind of mocked on the internet today. Ultimately, Microsoft did cut their losses with Bob and ended the operating system. But the helpful paperclip character at this point named Clippit stuck. And so Microsoft had actually developed 250 virtual assistant characters, and only this one stuck around for the 1996 release of Microsoft's word processing software. 
Microsoft even met with a team of social psychologists and focus groups to brainstorm how to make a virtual assistant character work. And it was pretty clear early on that Clippy was destined to be annoying. Focus groups pointed out that his eyes were aggressive and leering. And uh, women in the focus group particularly uh, singled out that he kind of gave off this like really creepy stalker vibe when he looked at you. They, like, they were very <laughs> into like describing his eyes. Like His eyes made people uncomfortable. But Microsoft was determined to make it work, and they soldiered on, and Clippy made his de- debut in 1996. Opening a Word document brought Clippy out from the ether to offer advice and tips, no matter how skilled you were at operating the software. Turning off Clippy, too, was especially difficult. For 1997 users, you had to actually change his program folder name to remove him from Word. And although there were other characters, such as Genius, who was sort of an Albert Einstein knockoff, and Power Pup, a superhero-powered dog... Clippy was the default character, and because of this, received the brunt of the criticism. Now, despite this, Clippy stuck around, getting a makeover in the year 2000, and finally being turned off in the year 2002. Microsoft attempted a really strange farewell for Clippy, announcing that the character was out of work, and creating a sadistic game in which users could zap him with a staple gun, letting out years of pent-up frustration. And the commitment to Clippy still remains strange, a feature so unpopular that stuck around for so long. In an article for Mental Floss, Jake Rawson suggested that since the original Bob operating system was spearheaded by Melinda French, who eventually married Bill Gates, that helped Clippy stick around for a few years longer than he would have uh, if that hadn't been the case. In 2007, Clippy officially met his end, but this end has not been permanent. In 2017, an anonymous programmer created a Chrome extension that ports Clippy into your internet experience. He's mostly useless, but he's still there. Then on July 14th of this year, Microsoft tweeted a picture of Clippy with the caption, If this gets 20,000 likes, we'll replace the paperclip emoji in Microsoft 365 with Clippy. Twitter users rose to the occasion, liking the tweet 175,000 times, and Microsoft delivered, replacing the paperclip emoji with Clippy. The overwhelmingly positive response to the move is really strange for a culture that was ready to sacrifice Clippy only years before. I would imagine the nostalgia factor here helps, but I think this signals that we don't necessarily hate Clippy, we just prefer the version who is silent instead of the version who kicks down our doors to ask if we need help when we don't. So I just wanted to see what Clippy looked like again. So while you were talking, I Googled Clippy. And, uh, you know, when you look up something, there's a section called People Also Ask. And so there's some popular questions for, for different Google topics that will come up, and you can click them, and they'll give you an answer. And so one of them is, is Clippy male or female? And so I clicked it, and it, it's disturbing. It says this. For those not in the know, the reincarnation of Clippy falls under the impreg genre of art, where a male is depicted as being pregnant. Perhaps the most disturbed by the impreg Clippy is the creator of Clippy, Kevin Atterbury. <laughs> All right, Jay, I've said it a bunch. If I could go back to school, I would for sure go back for something in the neurology field. I love the brain. 
Now, take out of this the fact that I would fail most of those high-level science classes. But I am fascinated by the way our minds work, both what we are capable of and what we're not capable of. Something of the utmost interest to me, though, is the crazy neurological phenomenon known as the Mandela Effect. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah, I have heard about it because I got fell into the kind of the rabbit hole with it uh, whenever I read that the Berenstein Bears books were really not the Berenstein Bears, but really they're the Berenstain Bears, and it's spelled Berenstain. And I was like, there's no way that that's true because everybody I've ever met says Berenstein Bears. Well, yes. Essentially, it means that someone believes that a fuzzy, distorted memory of something that didn't actually happen is, in fact, an accurate recollection of something that did happen. Basically, the brain creates a fake memory. And Jay, it's wild how all of this works. People literally remember something incorrectly, often with very vivid details. And they believe it so much that to them, it's not actually a lie. Their brain is telling them that it's 100% true. The Mandela effect was actually coined by the researcher Fiona Broom after she became one of a number of people that remembered Nelson Mandela dying in prison in the 1980s when he actually died in 2013 after leaving prison and becoming a South African president. Well, for many people, their Mandela Effect memory comes in the form of a movie starring 1990s actor and stand-up comedian Sinbad, claiming that Sinbad starred in a movie called Shazam, which they claim is about a genie who grants two children their ultimate wish for their dad to find love again. Very selfless children. Jay, some people claim to remember this movie scene by scene. And even NBA legend Shaquille O'Neal, who actually did play a genie in the 1996 film Kazam, said in May of 2020 that he'd be willing to star in a Kazam, Shazam, Avengers-style genie movie if Sinbad was up for it. The problem, yet again, Shazam does not exist. Some people even believe that Kazam, the Shaq genie movie, was a ripoff of Shazam. I am one of several people who specifically never saw Kazam because it looked ridiculous to rip off Shazam just a few years after it had been released, a Shazam truther named Carl told OurCommunityNow.com. It feels like a part of my childhood has now been stolen from me. How does a movie simply vanish from our history? I've taken to Craigslist, and I've posted a bounty of $1,000 for anyone that can turn up a copy of this movie, whether it was accidentally kept from Blockbuster or if someone made their own bootleg VHS copy. I want to be able to make it known that this movie is indeed real. Sinbad himself, Jay, has even commented on it through the years, joking with fans about how bad the movie would have been had it actually been a real thing. So how has the Mandela effect been felt by so many people about the same fake Sinbad movie? How has this Shazam debate raged on via the internet message boards through all of these years? Well, my friend, I offer you two possible solutions. Number one, in 1994, Sinbad hosted a Sinbad the Sailor marathon on cable television and was dressed like a pirate which honestly makes him look very much like a genie. Number two, when Kazam, the Shaq genie movie, was released on VHS, the movie had a preview before it, 
for a movie called The First Kid starring, you guessed it, Sinbad. And all of this, strangely enough, has become part of pop culture. In a 2018 episode of The X-Files, Agent Mulder says, and I quote, When someone has a memory of something that's not shared by the majority or the factual record. For instance, there are some people that have a memory of seeing a movie called Shazam, starring Sinbad as an irrepressible genie, even after it's pointed out to them that they're probably thinking of a movie called Kazam, starring Shaquille O'Neal as an irrepressible genie, especially because a movie called Shazam was never made. So I know you and I, you know, we don't really have this memory, but if one of our commute listeners remembers watching the movie Shazam, send us an email. Let's talk about it. I will say, though, so Sinbad is in one of my favorite movies, which is a real movie. Oh, no, I knew and this. It's actually I knew my this favorite, was coming. It's my favorite Christmas movie, a movie called Jingle All the Way. If you've never seen it, there's no time like the now. Christmas is coming up just a couple of months away. Get it on your Christmas movie yeah, watching. we got to hurry to the next segment before you start quoting it. Booster, we don't want him! So, Dave, uh, we were talking a little bit before the show, and I mentioned to you that I was going to do a segment on a product from the late 90s called Hit Clips, and you were not very familiar with it. Am I right on that? Yeah, I have. When you told me what it was, I was thinking of the Talkboy Talkback, which is not what this is. I mean, really, on the surface, Hit Clips is a really stupid idea. (laughs) So, like, it's like you don't (laughs) think it would be something that, uh, you know, has staying power, but it does. So if you were around in the late 90s and early 2000s, odds are that you remember this absurd product, a product called Hit Clips, which were tiny memory card chips that could be placed into a portable music player and then would proceed to play about a 60-second clip of a popular song. Not the entire song, just a clip. Popular clips of hit songs from the Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, Aaron Carter, Destiny's Child, and Britney Spears were all played on hit clips after Hasbro launched the product in 1999. The concept that people were willing to spend actual money on snippets of full songs in hindsight just seems totally bizarre. So why then were hit clips successful? And in a world where vinyl made a pretty impressive comeback, could hit clips actually make a comeback today? No. <laughs> Originally, hit clips debuted as McDonald's toys, but they were so popular that they were transitioned to the mainstream toy market. The player, get this, cost $20, and each cartridge cost $3.99, which seems like a lot of money even by today's standards. And Nicole Gallucci in an article for Mashable says it like this. Considering the collectible tunes quickly became status symbols for America's youth, in school hallways and on playgrounds, the more clips that swung from your keychains, backpacks, or belt loops, the cooler you were. And hit clips had no volume control and very poor sound quality. And in 2003, Hasbro released hit clips discs that played two minutes of music instead of one and featured tiny CDs instead of tiny cartridges. And hit clips even came out with extras such as a three-inch long boombox that played music out loud for everyone to hear, an FM radio scanner attachment, and even a karaoke device. And here's Nicole Gallucci for Mashable again. She says, Hit Clips did an excellent job of making consumers feel like they needed only a taste of a song to be satisfied. And our silly little brains, distracted by the novelty of miniature music players and more collectible clutter for our keychains, cast aside any shred of reasonable thinking and believe this to be true. 
Think about it. People were willing to spend money on part of a song when full songs existed for less. And in some cases, people already owned the full songs and even full albums, but still chose to pay more money for a song clip. And by 2002, Hasbro had sold more than 20 million hit clip devices, totaling an $80 million sales number. Hit clips were officially discontinued 14 years ago, and a resurgence seems extremely unlikely. You know, iTunes charges about $1.30 for a track. Streaming services like Spotify means that many have stopped purchasing music altogether. And our touchscreen, instant gratification-driven world just no longer fits with the hit clip model. And the nostalgia factor just isn't strong enough to overcome the gaps. On the surface, for example, like vinyl is more difficult to use than digital music. But there are enough benefits to outweigh that difficulty. Hit clips, not so much. These toys were really an important step, though, in the story of music. And primed us in a way for the iPod's release in 2001. For many people, this was their first experience with a handheld device that could let you switch between artists and songs with ease. Although much less advanced than the iPod, hit clips foreshadowed the technology just around the corner. And Dave, if you were wondering, yes, you can buy hit clips on eBay if you're looking for just a taste of nostalgia or just a taste of a single song. We're not. There's, there's not much of a market for, for hit clips. Now, I did used to purchase, which is also dumb, a single song on a, on a CD. So you could go to um, like a record store and buy the single from a band. And it was like $6 for just that song when you could buy the album for like 12 Yeah, and I got the idea for this segment uh, because it was a conversation me and my sister Stephanie were having. And she, she said like... Because she had one, right? She had one of these hit clips, and she was like, well, the reason I think we liked it is because, man, like, you go out and buy an album for $20 for one song. Why not just buy one minute of one song for three ninety nine? It seemed like a deal. Even though you do the math, it's not. If, to a kid, it does seem like a deal if you're really just hyper-focused on one also, song. Also, it makes no sense. It's like, well, why would we go watch the movie? We could, we could just pay for the opening scene. <laughs> now, with those singles, those, those CDs, um, quick story about that. I went on a field trip to Washington, D.C. when I was in sixth grade and i bought one um for uh i think probably for a girl most of the things i did that were bad in life were for a girl and so this was a, a single from a girly girl band Cl- clippy popped in he's like i think you need to buy this, your this, girl was, <laughs> this was a very girly band called m2m okay it was like th- i think it was three women and they had one song and i bought this one song on a cd for my then girlfriend and my dad was a chaperone on the trip and so he heard me telling somebody that i had bought this girl the m2m song and he thought he heard he bought an m&m song and this is when m&m had just come out and like all parents were scared of m&m and so he got really mad cuz he thought i was buying m&m music when actually looking back on it he should have been more mad at me for buying m2m music which was much worse than m&m And that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review to commute on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We are on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week.